Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. It can be difficult to hear. And, you know, I was thinking of uh, some of this might hit people odd about uh, why are you covering that? Well, one is because what we do is we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, so we're not skipping topics. We're just trying to discuss them as the Bible presents it. We try to take this seriously as the revelation of God. And I was, I was reading in Nehemiah, which uh, Joel already alluded to it, and if you don't know the story, that uh, the walls of Jerusalem were in uh, disrepair, and Nehemiah felt committed to try to build those back up. And so he appealed to the king. The king gave him um, permission to do that. They gathered a bunch of the Israelites together to rebuild the walls. Well, after it was done, they had a dedication And Nehemiah was just being honest about where Israel has been. And this is what he said during this dedication. He said in Nehemiah 9, Nevertheless, they were, speaking of the Israelites, disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. In other words, there were consequences to their disobedience. And that's really what judgment is. It's the consequences that God gives to those who are disobedient. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And so what we see is that right there in the midst of the story about God judging the Israelites, was on the other hand, God's great grace and mercy. So why is that important for us to remember? Well, I look at it this way. You know, I've talked to many uh, couples where there's been infidelity. And, uh, and God puts it back together. There's, there's forgiveness. There's great grace. Both are willing to repair the marriage. And, and God does some miraculous things. But what happens often is that you remember what it was like when you were in the midst of the mess. And you might say there were consequences to all of that. And you remember the pain and the hurt. And when you do that, it just reminds you of God's grace and his mercy. Because when you humbled yourself and you admitted that, then you look at what God has done. And that's amazing. That's really cool. Or or let's say you made some really bad financial decisions. You could have claimed bankruptcy Um, or you spent years getting out of debt, blah, 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 and it was your own doing. But then, you know, God showed you that, you admitted that, 
And now, you know, you're in, you're in much better shape. Well, when you remember what it was like when you mishandled your money, you can be very grateful for what God has done in your life now. Now, maybe you're in the middle of a mess of your own doing. My encouragement to you is there's always mercy and grace, and it comes by humility. It comes through confession and repentance. If you're still alive, there's still time, all right? So we've all sinned, and we are all in need of grace. So we're not just talking about the sin and judgment, but we need to remind ourselves of God's grace as well, okay? Amen? All right, let's all stand as we look at Romans 2 in our passage. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Would you go before the Lord and ask him to speak to your heart? Father, we acknowledge that there's a kind of holy transaction that takes place when your word is given. And we want to do our responsibility to have our hearts humbled before you to listen well. We're all in need of your word. We're all in need of your Holy Spirit to not only help us to understand, but to do the things that we talk about today. And so we entreat you. We need more of you, less of me. Fill us with your Holy Spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're finishing up this, these first 16 verses of Romans, talking about judgment. And the Apostle Paul has written about the objective reality of sin in people. This is people who are irreligious, no religion, or outside of Judaism, who Paul calls Gentiles. And he writes about sin in religious people, or in this case, the Jews. Now, what makes the Jews especially uh, an interesting case is that God made them his special people, and he gave them the Old Testament law. And in addition to that, they had prophets, messengers from him. Uh, They had Old Testament authors. They had the sacrificial system. And finally, they were given a Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. However, on a large scale, they rejected these things by God given to them. Now, what they were doing is interpreting, since they were God's special people, they weren't deserving of judgment, and they didn't sin, and they couldn't have been more wrong. Now, there's nothing quite like dealing with people who are in denial, right? Where it's very evident to everybody around them that there's an issue, but they're unwilling to admit it. 
if you've ever experienced an intervention or been a part of one where there are family or friends or both who come around and try to confront somebody about what's going on out of love. They're saying, hey, you know, you really need to address this. You know how difficult it is for people to face reality sometimes. And as a culture, we witness a disjunction from reality on, on multiple levels. Just have a discussion now with the general culture about biological sex or ethics or shared values or now even history itself is being rewritten or deconstructed. One author wrote this, that cultures, cultures are always dancing with denial. Writers tap us on the shoulder and say, may I cut in? Well, I'd add to that it's more than writers, hopefully. I would say the spiritual leaders are to point to reality. And the spiritual realities that Paul is dealing with in these first two chapters have to do with the presence of God, the presence of a moral order, and the idea that human beings have failed to keep that moral order. And if we take Paul's treatise as instructive for us today, we'd have to say, well, these things are issues for us today as well. Now, assuming that the majority in our audience today are believers uh, in Christ, and we also believe in the revelation of God through the Bible, we also have to realize the fleshly inclination that we all have, right? Uh, that is the, I'm not talking about your flesh and bones, but I'm talking about the, the, the ways of thinking and doing that are, that are in us that work against acknowledging God's presence, that work against acknowledging God's moral order, and work against us being honest about our own sin, right? We may have heard these past two messages, and we wonder why in the world are we talking about this? And if that's our situation, I would only warn you that it's easy to get complacent or unaware of our fleshly tendencies. It's easy just to point the finger at the other guy, but we realize, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know what? I've also had time in my life where when things didn't go my way, I may not have doubted God's presence or his existence, but I doubted that he loved me, right? Or I've certainly had times of rebellion where I really didn't care about what God had to say about something. And I've definitely been in denial about some of my sin. And so my point is, we've been guilty of all of these things that we're talking about. So we might say that Romans 2 is very relevant to us today. Verse 12, all who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So here Paul makes a general statement that Jew and Gentile alike are culpable. They have sinned. They have broken God's moral order. Now the Gentile is described as apart from the law. Obviously God revealed and gave the law to the Jew, not the Gentile. The Gentile though will not escape God's judgment if he just claims, well, I'm ignorant of the law, therefore God can't judge me. 
Now, obviously, the Jews are guilty because they've been given the law and they've broken that. They've fallen short. They didn't live up to it. So the deeds of both the Gentile and the Jew fall short. The words of Jesus kind of establish this principle uh, that we're going to be judged based upon what we have been given. You might remember the parable of the servants to the master, and we read this in Luke 12. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The point is, whether you've been given much or little, we are still responsible. Now, the difference between the Jew and the Gentile is not simply a matter of race, but of revelation. God gave Moses the law to give to Israel, and this was an advantage that the Gentiles never had. And we learn, though, in chapter 1 that the Gentiles are responsible before God because nature teaches everyone that there is someone, something out there. And then we also learn in our passage here today that the conscience has also been given as a witness to God. So a Gentile might be prone to say, well, it's only right that God would condemn the Jews. God gave them law, so he should judge them because they broke the law. And they might think that they escape judgment because they didn't have opportunity with the law. But Paul precludes that objection by saying these non-religious people, Gentiles, are also culpable. There is an interesting judgment from the lips of Jesus regarding some cities that responded to him while he was here on earth. They were given ample opportunity to respond to this personification of God on the earth in the person of Jesus. All of this kind of makes me chuckle because you hear in some strands of, quote, Christianity today, they reject um, much of the New Testament, mostly all of the Old Testament. They say, we just need to have the words in the heart of Jesus. It sounds so lofty, but they really don't take the words of Jesus. They just pick what they want from the words of Jesus. Because Jesus spoke a lot about judgment. You may not like it, but he did, all right? And it's not just one guy's record, it's four guys' record who walked with him. And this is what he said. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of uh, judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Can you imagine if you were a Jew and you heard Jesus say this? 
And can you imagine, many evangelicals today would have heard these words from Jesus? Wait a minute. You mean I'm worse than those homosexuals in Sodom? That's exactly what he said. I mean, that ruffles people's feathers when they, you know, get all high and mighty about sections within the culture that they think are so bad. And Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Look at your heart. Look where you're at. You rejected me. You are so blind. And it should cause us to just stand a little straighter. Because we have sin in our camp. Sometimes we can't see it. You know, in the late 70s, I was in an all-male choir. I went to the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. We had some black guys in our group. And there were churches in the South that we couldn't sing in because of that. This is the late 70s. People who thought of themselves as uber-religious, as, you know, Christians, were Baptists, were Presbyterian, were whatever. And they couldn't see the sin in their own camp. That's the kind of thing going on. And Jesus is saying, you don't have a clue as to how evil you really are. <laughs> Again, it's easy for us to rail against the sins of Sodom. But here Jesus says it's going to be worse than the sins of Sodom or Tyre and Sidon, two uh, cities that were mentioned as facing judgment in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. All three of these Galilean cities, by the way, had great light to Christ's witness, and where are they today? But ruins. Now, when Jesus says, woe, it's an expression of sorrowful pity. Uh, this is not a, you know, temper tantrum from God about these cities. It's not that Jesus got his feelings hurt. It's really a sign of a broken heart for a people intent on their rejection of the Messiah and then their corresponding judgment. The point is, favoritism will not be shown to those deprived of the law any more than those who possess it. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So obviously the Jew was known to take great pride in that they had the law. I mean, they had it read in the synagogues, they taught it, but that's not the same as doing it, Right? If works are the way for a man to get justified, and many thought that, that they were good enough for God to accept them, Paul is just saying, dude, you're in bad shape. And that's what it says in the Greek, dude, you're in bad shape, okay? Because they failed in their obedience to the law. You know how you audit a class and you don't get credit for it? It's like the Jews were auditing the law, right? They got no credit because 
they failed whatever evaluation there was in terms of doing it. Failed the test. No human being has fully obeyed the law. So there's no possibility of salvation through your works. Paul's emphasizing that the law itself did not guarantee the Jews' immunity from judgment, as they thought. What mattered was not possession, but obedience. So again, if one is trying to be justified by obedience, that, hey, know the standard. You know, Matthew 5, 48, the standard is perfection. And nobody does that. No one keeps the law. All are guilty. Now listen, if you're in church here today, I assume you value that. And that's great, and we should. But we cannot get lax into our thinking that church attendance whitewashes a life of disobedience. Okay? It's one thing to come to church and to hear the word. It's another to really intentionally strive to love your family well. Okay? And if you're not doing that well, you're walking in disobedience. It's great to come and to hear the word of God spoken. We should. But it's another thing when you hold bitterness in your heart and you're unforgiving and you're walking in disobedience. The point is, the end of it is not coming here. The end of it is obeying and doing the things that God is asking us to do, right? So if you know of things that are going on in your life and you're falling short, then humility will win the day. Acknowledge that. Confess and repent. And if you need help with any of it, we've got plenty of people in here that can help. Verse 14. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. Notice that the Gentiles do instinctively what the law requires. This doesn't refer to an outside force causing them to act morally, but something inside them. And when this occurs, Paul says they are a law to themselves. This doesn't mean that they make up a moral code just willy-nilly as they go along, but that whatever is prompting them resides inside them. Paul's not claiming they always do the law, but merely that they have an internal capacity that reveals itself. Newsflash. Not every atheist acts evil. Not every person who's in another religion is crooked, an adulterer, or a murderer. In other words, they can have outdoor actions that appear good. You'll find people from every cross-section who practice being honest, kind, or some other observable behavior. I remember once Janet and I, when we were living in Denver, uh, there was a uh, person that she worked with was a member of a cult. I won't mention which one. It doesn't matter. But clearly, you know, don't believe the Bible as it, as it says it, and uh, we're following a whole different um, God. They invited us over for dinner. Fine, go have dinner. And when he prayed, it was like the most beautiful prayer you'd ever hear. 
I mean, it was like, whoa, and ended it with, in Jesus' name. Wow. That was impressive. Now, if you didn't know anything about what was going on, you'd think, wow, that guy's a Christian, right? I mean, sure looked the part and sure sounded the part, um, but something else was going on. My point is, people still can act morally. Now, there are a lot who don't, but all I'm saying is there are people outside of our camp who, who, who act morally. Where does that come from? Where do people get that idea? Now, if you're an evolutionist, you'd say, well, that's just something that, you know, over the generations has developed in people. Uh, in his book, Unbelievable, Justin Brierley shares a story of a Jennifer Fulweiler who grew up in a loving family, but one in which religion was painted as clearly false. Uh, she said that she remembers a time when she uh, believed, uh, never believed in, in God as a child. Never did she believe in God growing up, okay? She was raised on a diet of science, reason, and evidence-based rational thought. And her bedtime reading was Carl Sagan's Cosmos, all right? And when, at a young age, she knew that the world ran according to a well-established set of natural laws and science, that was the de facto way of understanding everything. She remained a happy atheist into her adulthood, got married, was pregnant, had a child, and then something happened. Shortly after the birth of her first child, she experienced a dramatic shift in her thinking. She describes it this way. I looked down and thought, what is this baby? And I thought, well, from a pure atheist, materialist, uh, materialistic perspective, he is a randomly evolved collection of chemical reactions. I bet you that made for an exciting shower for that baby, all right? Um, and I realized... If that's true, then all the love that I feel for him is nothing more than chemical reactions in our brain. And I looked down at him and thought, that's not true. It's not the truth. This moment was a turning point for the young mother on what she would eventually lead her to her Christian faith as described in her book, Something Other Than God. Something clicked for her. The scientific explanations fell short. She knew this bond with her child and this child was something more. And all her knowledge of science couldn't explain all of that. A mom loves her child. And this lady wasn't satisfied with the root of love being her synapses firing in her brain. Solomon wrote this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, I won't know everything there is about God, but God has put within every human being something that signifies to him that there's just more than this material world. And that's what Paul is talking about. Verse 15. They show that the law requires, uh, that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them. The Gentile or irreligious person has a conscience, and it stands as an objective witness indicating right or wrong. 
No one lives up to their conscience because every human has acted against their conscience. Every human being has felt guilt. The conscience does for the Gentile what the law did for the Jew, indicating that we are falling short. A conscience can approve or disapprove, but no one is without guilt or culpability. None measure up to their own moral perceptions of right or wrong, let alone God's law. No one will be able to stand before God and say that God's judgment was unjust. His judgment is so precise that he takes into account the delicate moral perceptions of each person. And it's not that the conscience is the final bar, it's rather a major witness or compass to the moral law. You know, conscience is spoken of in different ways throughout the Scripture. In Acts 23, 1, and in 1 Timothy 1, 5, we read of a good conscience or approving of one's behavior. In a similar fashion, in Hebrews 13, 18, it speaks of a clear conscience. In Hebrews 10, 22, it speaks of an evil or guilty conscience. A conscience can malfunction to where in Titus 1.15, it says conscience can be defiled or corrupted by immersing yourself with false teachers who turn from the truth. And Paul speaks of a conscience being weak or uh, uber-sensitive in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. But maybe the worst thing about the conscience is when it's seared in 1 Timothy 4, 2. And this is when demonic activity is involved, and it lures people away from the faith. Now, the conscience is still present when it's seared or defiled, but it's not at optimum level because it has been ignored for so long. It's kind of like the mind. A person still has a mind when they have a concussion or they have memory issues, but the mind can be diminished in capability for short or long seasons. Verse 16, on the day when according to my gospel, God through Jesus Christ will judge the secret thoughts of all. So to judge the secret thoughts means that God can see and will judge the motives of every person. Now, this is good and bad. It's good in that you do things with a sincere heart to maybe help, and it doesn't turn out. People misinterpret, people accuse, even though you know your heart was right. So the fact that God can see the motive, that's a good thing. But also can be a bad thing. If you do something that might look good on the outside, but God knows the heart was very self-serving. It's interesting that God was, or excuse me, David was after God's heart, and yet we know that David committed grave sin. And on the contrary, Jesus blasted the Pharisees who tried to present a great outward appearance, but they were sick on the inside. Three times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, your father who sees in secret will repay you. David said to his son Solomon, to serve God with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. And we read in Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So these are sobering when you think 
of how much we can be just self-interested instead of loving. I mean, I've told you this multiple times, but the, the worst issue I have to deal with in ministry is me. It's not you or problems or conflicts. It's my own pride or arrogance or selfishness. And it's interesting how when, you know, when we have conversations with people, you know, we'll, we'll insert ourselves to grab the focus. We'll easily separate from others and instead of loving during a difficult thing, we just, you know, want to scat. This is all our flesh. And we all have this. I mean, we're all plagued while we live on this earth with these kinds of things. So when we struggle like this, it'll be to our advantage, it'll be to the advantage of others, and it will be for the glory of God that we operate in humility and be honest about our struggles on the inside and on the out. And we lean upon the power of Christ in us to transform us. And yes, he gives us that kind of power. And we have the body of Christ to assist us. But the first step is to acknowledge that we have issues. And so let's take off our mask when we come together acting like we've got our act completely together. All of us are dealing with stuff. All of us have a flesh. So it's one thing I appreciate about being your pastor is that I can talk openly about, and I don't want to wear my feelings on my sleeve, but I can at least be honest with you if there's struggles here and there and you don't put up, you know, a, a pedestal. And we realize, well, you know, you're no different than us and you're exactly right. And that's how we need to come together with this kind of, with this kind of humility. It's why Paul says when you confront somebody in Galatians 6, you know, you, you do this with humility. And so um, we need to let the light of Christ transform us. So Jesus Christ is the actual judge. We read this in 2 Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And as such, the gospel is a part of this, uh, as we see in verse uh, 16, the gospel is a part of this redemptive story. It's the antidote for sin. It's the antidote for our judgment. The gospel has little meaning without sin and its corresponding judgment. And Paul was given the stewardship to proclaim the objective reality of sin before he could even talk about the gospel. And he calls it my gospel. It was his life. It was his purpose. It was his hope. It's the same for us today. So I implore you, make humility your first step. And this stuff about judgment is mitigated as we go to God openly. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christ Community Church podcast. We hope today's message gives you encouragement and hope. If you would like more information about the church, you can go to cccspringfield.org.